Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Exit Point. Today, Matt interviews Jeff Weatherall. We're recording this intro after the fact, and unfortunately, I couldn't make this interview, but it's a hell of a story. Matt, break it down. Tell us a little bit about Jeff and what you guys go into. So uh, Jeff is uh, an experienced Australian base jumper who's uh, now become an instructor and mentor. And he came from professional wakeboard world. And what we get into is a fatality incident that he was a part of. And we talk about uh, the lead up and the fatality, but we really delve into the aftermath of the incident. And Jeff wanted to come on the show and uh, tell us about some of the mistakes that he made during uh, handling that incident in the hopes that the community could learn and, and you know not make those same mistakes. There's definitely a lot to learn from Jeff's experience. He's a hell of a storyteller. And without further ado, let's get him on the track. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Uh, We'll start with an easy one. What motivated you to want to come on the show? Um, You know, I've been base jumping for about nine years. And early in the career for me, um, I went through a pretty hectic situation, watching a good friend of mine go in um, and then dealing with the subsequent fallout of that, especially um, considering the legality surrounding it here in Australia. um, I thought it would be a great time to talk about um, a lot of the logistics and maybe the, the things that could be avoided, you know? Yeah, man. No one thinks about it until it's upon them. And then, you know, you're under duress trying to work out so many logistical headaches Oh, well, uh, before we get into the story, let's, uh, get a little bit of a characterization on you. Uh, you know, for the people that don't know who you are, where'd you come from? Uh, where'd you grow up? What are you doing currently? I was born in New Zealand, uh, in a small town called the Hibiscus Coast, small little East Coast town. Grew up just being really involved in, um, skateboarding snowboarding, uh, surfing, all kinds of uh, sports, I guess you would consider into that kind of extreme sport kind of scenario. I just I just really loved being in the outdoors. Um, left school, became a snowboard instructor, discovered wakeboarding soon after that and turned that into a passion which turned into a profession. Spent 15 years in the USA um, as a pro, won a few world titles and um, – had a really, really awesome time. Had like lived a rock star lifestyle, I guess you could say. And during that time, skydiving and base jumping came along. And now I am living on the Gold Coast in Australia. I'm 41 years old. I'm a tandem master. I'm a wingsuit coach. And um, I just absolutely love base jumping. All right. So let's uh, take a crack at why air sports, from water sports to air sports. What, uh, what got your goat there? Uh, It's funny because growing up in New Zealand, you know, we had lots of um, sports television. And um, for me, I saw a a television show when I was about 16 years old of Frank Gambale jumping in New York City. Um, And I was just like that. I'd never seen base jumping before that. And I was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And, um, yeah, I kind of said to myself at that point in time, I was like, one day, I don't know how, I don't know why one day I will become a base jumper. And that, that kind of little fire inside me never left me. I didn't, I didn't do my first skydive till I was 24. Um, at 25 years old, while I was living in Orlando, Florida, I 
decided to go down the AAFF route and I did my did my AF at Titusville. Um, subsequently from 18,000 feet, which I didn't know was a big deal at the time until later down the track, I realized that that just doesn't really happen anywhere else. Um, and even still, it was a really slow progression from there. It wasn't until I was 32 years old that um, I met up with Jimmy Poucher, luckily through Dukes, and um, went out to the bridge in Twin Falls, and he took me for my first base jumps. Oh, man. Hey, yo. Shout out to Jimmy Poucher. Uh, he's the one that taught me, too. I Maybe, know. Uh, he's such a legend. Oh, my God. Dude, yeah, exactly. Perfect. Thank you for that word. That is exactly how we described him in the last podcast. Uh, legend. <laughs> yeah. There really is no other word in, in every sense. And it's for me, it's not about the the persona and the community. And he was – he is everything that – you know, like just a friendly, community-driven awesome person that was friends with like everyone you know there was no click there was no we're the cool kids he was just like so welcoming and inviting to you know like a person like myself an outsider that you know didn't know anything about base jumping yeah radically inclusive so Mm. uh give us a little bit of a elevator pitch on your progression in base jumping when did you start uh where did you take it uh where are you at now my like I said, my first 11 base jumps were out in Twin Falls. I was living in Canyon Lake in Southern California at the time, wakeboarding. Um, spent a few years down there, eventually um, moved up to Northern California and lived very close to the Forest Hill Bridge and got to spend a fair amount of time there and also a little bit of time in a little known valley south of there. I think they call it Yosemite. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, I was really lucky. I got to spend, uh, you know, I just through introductions and networks got to spend a lot of time with uh, Graham Hunt and some other legends around that area. Um, And then not soon after that, a really good friend of mine was in a pretty big wakeboard accident, which rendered him end up being a quadriplegic. Um, So my life kind of took a little bit of a different turn, headed back out to Florida to help set up a charity foundation and eventually getting him back to New Zealand uh, and back to his family. Um, And that kind of left me at a point where I was already retired from wakeboarding and was starting to think about what I'm going to do with my future. And um, at that stage, you know, I had uh, probably four or 500 base jumps and about 300 skydives at the time. I was really interested in wingsuiting and um, ended up coming back to Australia because we're pretty strapped for cash after the previous two years of just um, trying to raise money for our friend, Um, which led me to the idea of maybe becoming a tandem master, trying to think of um, ways to be better, ways to stay alive longer. I was watching lots of people come along in a similar situation to me, you know, doing a hundred skydives or so, and then getting into base jumping and basically stopping skydiving. And I was watching, you know, guys join the BFL list and I was thinking to myself, well, how can I make sure that I don't, you know, I make the the best chance possible for my survival? And I thought, well, you know, probably just like my progression in wakeboarding, the only way to do that is to really immerse yourself in a sport. And, you know, you look at a lot of the guys, say Red Bull team guys and um, other people that we would consider, you know, top athletes in our sport they're all ninjas in the skydive scenario so 
it was very easy for me to see that maybe immersing myself in the in the skydive side of things and and learning and uh becoming a tandem master and becoming a wingsuit coach and an af coach and uh, you know doing all these other things that would probably um really help me with my longevity and man i can tell you from now after you know the last seven years being a tandem master in byron bay and and now in surface paradise getting to jump out of a heli every day with people strapped to the front of me i mean my canopy skills uh like exponentially better than when I first came into it, you know? So it's, it's done nothing but be good, good for me. Yeah, man. Living the game definitely uh, makes the life in the game a little more sustainable for sure. So from professional wakeboarder transferring the mentality into a professional skydiver and now professional base jumper as well. Correct. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to be the person in the community here in Australia, especially because that's the area that I can affect um, that person that I wish I could have found at the very start, which of course, when I did find, you know, Jimmy and Dukes and those guys brought me in and um, I'm just trying to be that person here for other people that are coming up. You know, people have so many questions and, you know, in the past when I very first came into it, I was like, Hey, I want to be a base jumper. You show it's up to a, up to a, Scott up drop zone and you know like old school tandem masters just look at you and laugh you off but yet you know 10 years later here I am but it was it was hard to find the right information and learn about the history and you know figure out what the path is whereas you know now guys can guys and girls can come my way and uh, I'm not gonna I'm now going to bring them into that fold and say, hey, well, this is your dream. This is what you want to do. Then let's set out a, a clear path to help make sure that it can be a successful path and that, you know, we can learn from previous people's mistakes so that you don't end up on this list of um, friends that we have over here, you know, that, yeah. are, that have passed on. Yeah, or at least uh, don't be the second one on the list doing the same thing, you know, be on there for an original idea at least. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about, I talk about that a lot, you know, like we, we say, you know, the, that all the mistakes and the lessons that have learned have been written in someone else's blood. And it's really important to not make those similar mistakes, you know, like we're really lucky. We're in such a cool time of life. Now the progressions with wingsuits is going amazingly and all the gear really, we don't have to reinvent the wheel at this point in time. We can go out and jump. And if you, if you really kind of, you know, stick to kind of a certain kind of formula, you're going to be, you're going to be predominantly all right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's take it back. We've got, you know, you at 2022, when, uh, when, what year did you start base jumping? Uh, it would have been 2013. 2013. Dang, man, that is a career. And so the story that we're going to get into, where along that timeline are we, uh, you know, jumping into the journey? Uh, it would have been for me, I was probably at about 70 or 80 jumps. Um, I was, I thought that I was a pretty conservative jumper. Um, I tried to really listen to, um, Dukes and the people around me, other mentors that would, you know, offer suggestions and advice and stuff like that. I tried to really think about, picking the people that I'm jumping with, um, discussing things like, Hey, you know, if we're going somewhere as do, 
you know, and there's an emergency, do I know who to call? If I'm with another jumper, it's like, do I know this person well enough that I trust that they're going to make the correct decisions? And if there is a, an incident of any kind, are they going to be able to make the, the right calls and the right direction to go? So I felt like I was pretty conservative. Um, and then the friend of mine that went in, his name was Ash Cosgriff. Um, we met at a Christmas boogie in the Blue Mountains, which um, happens each year. A lot of the crew get together in Australia. The Blue Mountains is really like our Moab of Australia. Um, although I will say it's a lot more technical than Moab. So oh, I, oh, gauntlet being I thrown invite, down. <laughs> I invite any any of you guys to come down and um, you can ask Dr. Charlie Kulinkis, uh what his thoughts are regarding that. <laughs> Oh man, dude! I just I just heard in the back of my head like at least four or five uh, Moab locals going like, they don't have any fucking Brent, slot Brent. canyon things that you're jumping through. They don't have any letter boxes over there. What what's this guy talking about? <laughs> I will I will personally be your guide. Come on out. All right, all right, dude. I, I like this. I like this. <laughs> Yeah. So, anyways, we we meet out there and um, we do a lot of we do a lot of jumping and and it's always been the older guys looking after the younger guys, teaching them um, you know teaching them the ropes out there. I met a guy named Ash out there and we really clicked together. He was into lots of other you know extreme sports as well, and we we kind of really hit it off. And we decided that we were going to take a trip down to a tower which at the time was the tallest tower in the southern hemisphere um over australia day weekend we were going to go meet up with um some other well-known aussie crew and uh spend the weekend jumping down there but the the glitch point on this is yeah it's in the middle of nowhere um it's pretty secluded it's nice farmland it's right next to the coast uh it also happens to be a decommissioned military facility oh dang what height are we so, talking just yeah. to just to like get what is high? We're, we're talking fourteen hundred and thirty-five feet, and that is also the um, first exit I ever exited in a wingsuit. Oh, nice! In my bird, you have to climb the whole thing. <laughs> no, you got to climb it. All right, all right. So we got a massive yeah. antenna in the middle of nowhere, military decommissioned. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, so. Ash and I, we met up in Sydney. We drove 10 hours south through the night that night, um, camped the night in the in the woods out the back there. And then we had uh, Feral and a couple of other guys were going to be coming down um, that way to meet us. And so we camped the night and it was, we were like still waiting for them to come down the next day. And I was like, well, shit, let's go for a jump and we'll um, catch them in the afternoon. We'll grab a beer and then we'll we'll start raging for the weekend from there. Um, so Ash and I rolled out to the antenna. We climbed the antenna and um, we got up the top and Ash decided we wanted to do a, a two-way, which I was totally, totally fine with. We were, we, and it was one of those things, it's funny, you know, like you, we, we were both, you know, around the like 70, 60, 70 jump mark. And we were, you know, trying to do all the right things like, hey, you know, in case the worst thing happens, like here's where my keys for the car are and you know, that kind of stuff. But when you talk about that stuff, you know, we're trying to do the right thing, but it never feels like you have to ever actually do that. Yeah. Right. Like, um, 
so yeah. So anyways, um, we get up the top, we slap hands. He decides we want to do a two-way. Uh, it was pretty windy that day, but the wind was running directly between the wires and we're, we're both running tracking suits. And um, his idea was that we wanted to get off together side by side. He was going to roll onto his back. I was going to come over the top. We'll track for a few seconds together. Then he would roll back over. We would split directions and then um, and then pitch. Sounds good, sick. Good. Seems, seems pretty fun, pretty easy, pretty safe. Uh, by that stage, I had already had uh, a, like a good, um, uh, probably like 15 or 20 jumps off that tower. I'd been spending a, a fair bit of time jumping down there at, like at any stage I could. And um, anyways, jump goes, we jump, we exit. Uh, he gets on his back, uh, he's laying on his back and he's giving me, you know, the, the double shaka with the like biggest smile ever on his face, which is, you know, kind of like the, the real memory for me that is like burned in my brain of, of him. Like my, that's my last lasting memory of him. You know, it was like the, just the pure stoke of like, how good is life right now? This is so good. Um, he rolled over and as he rolled over, he actually kind of rolled and turned 180, ended up like facing the tower. It was pretty windy. And, and in hindsight, you could have probably, you could open there. He ended up rotating around. He turned back around 180, could have also pitched there, but, um, he decided to continue to track. He deployed late, um, and impacted full noise at line stretch pretty much, um, I landed. Yeah, it was, I, I was, so as, as he was doing this turn around to, to face back to the regular heading as getting to the point where I'm like, all right, I'm, I got to track out of here. I track out. And as I, as I deployed would have been about the same time that he would have been impacting. So I never heard the impact, but I kind of did realize that things were going wrong. <clears throat> How was that? And there's that I just like, you know, like watching him like roll and roll the wrong direction and then correcting it. And then kind of like during that moment being like, Oh, this is a bit weird. Like this is not, it is not quite going to plan at this point. Um, I deployed and I'm instantly looking around for his canopy. Where is he? Where is he? He should be, I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure he's fine. Um, and then his canopy was laid out perfectly. Like, as if you would have laid it out on the ground in a like perfect, you know, arc with the lines at full stretch and the, and the canopy laid out and him. And then I was like, surely maybe he's just got a broken leg. Maybe he's just knocked out. Maybe he's, I'm sure, you know, like the way that I, you know, I've never seen a canopy like that when somebody's, you know, and I'd never seen anything like that before. Anyways, I, there's a big, there's a big metal fence that goes around the, that inside area. So I, I actually ended up having, I was landed outside the fence, ditched my gear, of course, yelling the whole time, ash, ash, ditched my gear, jumped the barbed wire fence like faster than you could. I know I could never imagine jumping a fence that fast, you know, like three, three layers of barbed wire. And I jumped it like it was nothing, um, and ran over to him. And of course, <clears throat> you know, when that, when you, you know, it's hard to imagine one minute being in like the most like kind of blissful feeling with your friend. And then next minute standing over his body, knowing that like, he's gone, you know, like he's, he's broken in half. He's like, it's not a, it's, it's, it's an image in my head that, you know, is always going to kind of be there. 
Um, and then standing in a field, you know, a hundred miles from anywhere else or anyone else and having to be like, okay, well, what happens here? Now, previous to that, I always had thought, you know, I've mentally prepared myself should the worst ever happen. And, you know, I can make the right decisions and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when it, when push came to shove, I was standing there and I was like, I'm so fucking out of my depth right now. And I just, I, I do not know, do not know what to do here. Yeah. Um, let's pick what the course that. of action is. Let's pick apart that element yeah. real quick. Cause uh, man, the same thing happened to me and I made the same, uh, type of miscalculation. Maybe it was, uh, we can call it overconfidence of like, oh yeah, mm. I'll, I'll be fine if this happens. And yeah. my like position now is that if you haven't lived through it, you don't actually know how you're going to react in that situation. Yeah. And look, and look, of, I thought I could too. Like I, you know, I had a cl very close friend of mine um, pass away, you know, years ago in my early twenties uh, in a swimming pool. Uh, and, and I ended up being the person that found him and, and recovered his body from the pool. So it wasn't like it was the first time that I'd seen a dead friend, you yeah. know? Um, so I thought, you know, I've, been, I've already been through some gnarly shit. I should be fine. But then I'm like, well, I'm on a military facility. I'm base jumping illegally. I'm like, what, like, and now he's my, my friend Ash is, is dead. And I, you know, I kind of always thought, you know, if you're in some country and it's legal, if you're in New Zealand or if you're in Europe and you're out base jumping and it's legal and it's kind of like, well, you know what to do. You ring the authorities and you just help them with the, with the situation. And it's, and it's, you know, that seems, that seems pretty obvious. And then obviously you're going to have to deal with the fallout of the grief and the family and all that kind of thing. But then you add the illegality and the uncertainty of what's going to happen now. Yeah. And like, the and like what's, what's the course of action here yeah. and what is the right course of action? Now, my course of action looking back was not the right course of action, which is why I wanted to come tell the story really. All right. Well, let's get through it, man. Let's uh, start with how did you react? What was the what was the problem set you were trying to deal with? Well, so I jumped the fence. I'm standing over him. He is he's, both his legs are broken. He's broken in half and kind of split up the center. He's broken neck. Um, he's he's there's nothing that can be done. He he is gone. Um, you know, I was you always think. You know, if there's any way that you can, if someone's injured, it doesn't matter that the game's up. You just do the thing you could to make sure that a friend survives. But in this case, that that ship had sailed. That was done. Um, so now I'm left. Well, what do we? What do we do here? Do I call the authorities and I stay here and we go from there? Or what's the, what's the course of action? It's been a long time since someone had gone in, in Australia. And, and to be honest, I'd never talked with any mentors or any, um, you know, older crew for advice on something like this. <clears throat> Anyways, the guys that were coming down, I called them and uh, I got some advice. Well, I, I, it wasn't so much advice. It was more options. I got some options. You can call the authorities and you can stay there 
and there might be a huge fallout. You're at, you know, at the time I was a professional wakeboarder, world champion. I was traveling all over the world. Are the authorities going to come down on me in such a way that I may, may never be able to travel again? Um, you know, you're thinking, you know, am I going to go to jail? Like well, all these other things are thinking and, you know, in a high stress situation, you know, you've got a million thoughts racing. And on the, the other option that was presented to me was <clears throat> to uh, leave the scene with the GoPros and clean up my stuff and call because there was nothing I could do to help him in this way and um, leave the scene and call it in from a payphone with all the details and um, like anonymously leave it at that. Um, and at the time, that is the the choice that I chose to take. Man, how hard was that to I, just leave your friend there? Like, I know that he's gone, but like that also requires that you accept that death fully and completely so quickly. Like, what was absolutely. it like walking away from well, the scene? And yeah, I mean, it was just like, this is what has to be done. And there's the question that got posed to me on the phone was, is there anything else that you can do for him? And the answer was no. And the other question that was posed was, what would you expect of your friend should the shoe be on the other foot? Now for me, and I know we had talked about it uh, previously, I if I fuck up, the last thing I want is my friends to be getting roasted for my mistakes. So if I'm if I'm dead, I'm dead. Like there's you know, please don't get in any more trouble than this is already gonna cause. Cause none of us when we go together jumping in as a group wants to set a shit show for our friends, do we? Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, it was hard to we I had a GoPro on my head. He had two GoPros, one front facing, one rear facing. Um, they both um, broke off on impact. I took those GoPros, so I didn't remove them from the body, um, which later on in the story will will become, uh, will, you'll understand why I said that. Um, I, I walked back across the field to where our car was. I packed all our stuff up, my stuff, his stuff. I got my truck and I drove probably 20 minutes to a small town grabbed a pay phone with a, with a T-shirt wrapped around the handheld, knowing they were probably going to fingerprint it at some stage, and um, called it in, called all the details, got an exact location. Um, and then I got in my car and I started driving 10 hours back to Sydney by myself. What was that, that conversation was like? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty strange story to relay to somebody over the phone. How, how did that go? Uh, well, I mean, I called, I called yeah, over here. It's triple zero. Um, I called triple zero and I said, uh, that they, they're asking, what's your emergency? And I said, there has been a base jumping death. Um, the, the person in, um, person who we're talking about is 26 year old. Here's his name. Here's his address. Here's all these things. Um, they, they're, trying to get me to stay on the phone. They're asking me, you know, like, are you sure he's deceased? All of these kind of things. They're also trying to keep me talking on the phone. I, I gave them all the information um, that I possibly could because I had his driver's license, his wallet, all that kind of stuff. And then I, um, 
And then I basically said, no, I can't stay on the phone. I'm going to leave you guys with it and hung up that phone and got in the car and started cruising. And, um, you know, like, like any base jump death, our community is so small and so tight. It was, you know, probably minutes before most people probably around the country found out, you know, that the coconut wireless is pretty quick here. Um, and I did get it. I got a lot of, I did get a fair few calls from people that were close to me that were also, you know, experienced base jumpers that said, you know, look, we think you, you've done the right thing. There's nothing you can do to, to help him in this situation. And, um, it's best that you leave the area and, and do what you do, you know? Um, then there was other people, <clears throat> the outfall from that was pretty hectic. Then there was other people, you know, down the track that, that were, that either didn't know me or only knew me from far away that, that had like big issues with the situation, but maybe they didn't, they never heard the, the situation completely or some people were pissed, you know, like obviously, uh, one of Ash's best friends, a guy who doesn't base jump anymore, <clears throat> was mega pissed. Was just you know there were some people like, how could you leave him out in the field by himself? You know, and other people like, well, there's a decommissioned military facility, and there's nothing more you can do. Is there any point in getting any more trouble than than what's necessary? So, but yeah. um, it's yeah. different uh, for the initiated, the you know the base jumping crew you know, than it is for the regular citizens. They just don't quite understand the the level of personal responsibility that goes along with this activity. And so it seems strange to them that you wouldn't drop everything. Also, like, I mean, a lot of us prepare uh, a lot more for those situations mentally and physically than than anyone else uh, that just leads a normal life. And so it also seems incomprehensible to them that you could leave the scene like how could you do that why were you not overcome by uh emotions and and having to you know you know stay there just to assuage your 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 guilt and feelings of all the like you know it's just all these things wash over and you're like man it's it's not that like we go into execution mode you know we're we're used to yeah living and i so think close. i think that's what that's what makes people good base jumpers too, right? That was being able to compartmentalize, same as same as probably uh, military guys, you know? Exactly. You deal with the situation at hand and you deal with the emotions later on. So did anyone uh, come at you with anything that was reasonable uh, in the, like, you know, aftermath of this? Or was it all kind of like, oof, dude, you weren't there, like... I, I hear your sideline, you know, your armchair quarterbacking, but please, like, take a break. Anybody that was really, really pissed off and either close to Ash or just maybe a part of the Australian community um, that didn't know me so well, like, I've always been an open book on this subject. And, you know, like, sooner or later, I've run into almost everybody that has had had questions about the scenario and I was always happy to sit down and answer all of those questions. And by the time I go through the story, there usually ends in, you know, a few hugs and some tears and we grab a beer and we kind of move through that grieving process. Um, so I think, you know, I've met, I've met lots of different and I, you know, I've run into different people at different places, you know, just this last year I was, um, 
doing some jumps up at Airly Beach, which is far, far north of us. Um, and I was just at a social setting and it's been, you know, years since Ash passed away. And uh, my wife and I were there having some drinks with some of the tandem crew and there was some new tandem masters that I hadn't met there before. And I get introduced to this one guy and he's just like, he was like so like aggressive. He, I, I was like, oh, hey, I'm Jeff. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know who you are. And I was like, whoa, what's Ooh. going on here? And then I was like real, really hostile. And my wife was like, uh. And then next minute, you know, he pulls up his uh, – the shorts and shows a tattoo on his leg, obviously, which was a picture, a pretty kind of like, you know, famous picture of Ash that we all know of, like, you know, tattooed on his leg. And I was like, Oh, I know what this is about. And I was like, bro, let me grab two beers. We're going to go sit in the corner and we're going to fucking talk. And by the end of it, now we're good. Now we're mates, no drama, you know, I think lots of people just have lots of questions and it's, if they don't have those answers, they find it really hard to grieve. And maybe I'm a great at the time, especially it was like I became a good scapegoat for that. That maybe the anger. Yeah, exactly. The anger. I mean, if you're the only one there, mm. then yeah. you're a natural person to project that anger onto. You know, it's all part of the grieving process. And so, mm. you know, when we go through that stage of anger, it's it's hard to just reconcile it internally. Like a lot of times we're going to want to project it onto somebody or something or, you know, Oh, was it this equipment or this person who said this and that? And it's, it's strange, man. It can break any way. And so Mm. it's totally natural for it to land on you. It's interesting that a lot of people find, especially in a death situation, a lot of people find it very hard to ever let the the blame lay with it just being an accident and the person made a misjudged call. Yeah. Like it, it has to be someone's fault. It has to be liability. You know, we live in such a world of liability. We're always looking for a scapegoat of someone that, that is there that we can still like take a chunk out of versus being like, well, this person is doing a very dangerous act and did their best to mitigate the the risk. But in this period of time, they just fucked up and here we are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, none well, of us ha- expect to fuck up. <laughs> so, uh, so what happened next? We got, uh, we got the phone call. We got the, some aftermath, like everything's kind of working its way through the grapevine. Uh, what happened next? So I, I got, I actually got to Sydney and I was, I was doing some work for my parents company at the time. And I was staying in a, an apartment by myself. So I got back to Sydney and, Looking back on it, that 10-hour drive and then the subsequent 24 hours um, by myself was really – like looking back, I think it was, such a, it was such a great way for me to decompress and deal with the situation in my own head uh, without having people around me asking a million questions. Am I okay? Uh, this, that. You know, like I could just spend some time to really process the scenario. So <clears throat> I had the – I had the three cameras. I got back to Sydney. Uh, I met up with um, a couple of people up there that, that I know and I trust and have been around for a long time. And we we went frame by thra- frame through that footage over and over and over again to try and figure out what the hell happened. Um, and we come down to the point that 
it basically ended in object fixation. There was one tree in the landing area. He kind of landed very close to that. And I think he just was uh, so fixated on that object that he maybe became aware, unaware of his um, altitude and lost lost altitude awareness before deploying. And um, so, yeah. Dang, yeah. It, it's, it's easy to do off those really high objects where initially you get that ground rush and then it kind of disappears when you get so low. And then, you know, you're traveling terminal velocity, having, you know, already, you know, passed the horizon line by, Mm. it's really difficult to make a a depth perception judgment call at that point. Yeah. Another thing that I've never really voiced to many people out loud and as it's only really my own opinion but on our drive down ash and i talked a lot about um a lot about you know wanting to become great base jumpers and wanting to you know be technically proficient and stuff like that Uh, and he said he you know he'd been out jumping lots of different antennas and stuff and he was showing the local boys at his local drop zone some um some of his footage and and one of the comments that came up, uh, and, you know, it might have been a comment in passing as these older guys, like, kind of just f- throwing a bit of shit, like, hey, man, why are you you're opening so high? Like, like, like kind of just, like, in, in jest almost. And and it did, the com- that comment didn't really, when we were talking about it, didn't really seem anything to do with anything at the point in time ex- until like after the fact of his death, it was like, was that in the back of his mind also like, Oh, I don't want it. These guys, you know, down the drop zone calling me a pussy for pulling high. Like I want to like smoke it a bit lower. Was that a thing that was in his head or not? I don't know, but it's always kind of been in the back of my mind. I mean, it, it's, it, the brain has no filter. It has no firewall. Things just mm. get imprinted on it. You know, it's hard. Yeah. It takes a, a lot of intentional, mm. you know, action, a lot of mindfulness to get something that you heard uh, to not affect you. And yeah. dude, I'm on your same page. I, I think, you know, statements like that, you know, we should tell people to shut the fuck up more often these days. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. So anyways, the... The news headlines, like I always say in Australia, the only thing that trumps a shark attack on the news is a base jumper death. Um, they don't happen very often, but when it hits, it's pretty pretty big fodder for the news. Um, so it hit the news. Uh, my parents knew I was down base jumping and stuff, but they didn't they didn't put two and two together, uh, and they didn't even really ask me about it. And I was I was back. In Sydney, I think it was like a Saturday, and by Saturday afternoon, it was it was all over the news. And the fact that someone had passed away, uh, there was a detective um, on the case, and that they knew that someone else had been in the area and had anonymously made a call, and they were searching for that person, um, which was me, of course. So now I guess I'm almost like a a fugitive? Yeah, know. so now you're the subject uh, of a criminal investigation because they don't know what really happened there. Correct, correct. So, and then I started to come to the conclusion that me keeping my mouth shut and me not coming forward was only going to end in the same place. Because these days we talk on cell phones and we text and we, we you know, we're on like all these different 
you know, whether you're using Messenger or Instagram or whatever, it only takes the police, you know, a few weeks to get uh, a subpoena to get the records from your telephone company. And next minute, they're going to have all of Ash's records of who he spoke to and what the conversations were. Um, and so I was like starting to have these, th- uh, these thoughts of, well, they're going to find out exactly who I am. And there's no hiding this. There's no getting away from this. And, you know, maybe in the shock of the moment of me, you know, leaving, which was the wrong choice. Um, I, you know, clearly didn't think these things through. Um, not that that matters anyways, but we'll get to that later. But um, so I called my parents. I said, hey, sure you heard of this base jumper death on the news. They said, yep. I said, I'm the other person they're looking for. I'm going to fly home right now back up to the Gold Coast, which is in a different state. And uh, I got a lawyer and um, come pick me up, please. <laughs> We're going to go see this lawyer who also happens to have been a base jumper and, uh, uh, and a prominent skydiver How'd in Australia. How did your parents so, take that news? Um, nothing is unexpected, I guess, for me <laughs> over the wow. years. Of All right. <laughs> between... between broken backs and surfing big waves and doing all that. I mean, I, I just, I, you know, they, I don't really know. They just, they just deal with, they just were like, okay, well, this is what we have to do. So here we go. So they picked me up. I went and saw the lawyer. We basically went to turn, turn myself in with my lawyer. Um, and it was, it was a public holiday and the craziest thing happened. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go from the lawyer's office down to the local police station in Brisbane city. They're going to for sure take me in. And it's like a, it's like Aussie day weekend. So it's like massive public holiday. I was like, there's, they're going to take me in, probably going to get arrested. I'm going to be put in a cell till Monday or Tuesday when someone can kind of get to me. Um, I went in there and they had like the, the local weekend skeleton stuff. They were like, okay, cool. Well, um, we'll take your phone number, I guess. And we'll, we'll give you a shout on the next week. And so I walked on out of there and went, went home and it was the most bizarre situation. But, um, obviously come Monday morning, we got a call from the detective from Victoria, which obviously, which is two States away from where I am in Queensland. You know, it's a 20, it was a 24 hour drive each time from the Gold Coast down to Omega, down to the antenna down there was a pretty big drive. Um, but, was the biggest biggest tallest structure in the in the whole southern hemisphere so i used to always think it was worth the drive but anyways um the detective came up flew up from down there came and um they took me into the police station for statements and that's um when things get kind of even a little bit crazier because at this point in time i'm i'm trying to come forward but i was also trying to protect my ass a little bit i guess um so this they came and sat me down. They said, hey, we want you to just give us a, a full recount of the situation. I said, hey, look, Ash and I, um, and and mind you, prior to this, I had been jumping in the Blue Mountains and I'd sprained my ankle pretty bad. So I'd been, I had been kind of on crutches for a little bit and limping around. But um, landing in a grassy open field on a nice windy day is usually pretty easy. So <laughs> Omega, was, <laughs> Omega was still like not off the list, you know, but we... I said, hey, look, we traveled down there together. We went to do a jump. Uh, or I was like, he went to do a jump. I've got a messed up ankle. You guys can obviously see I'm limping. So, um, you know, he went up. I, he did a jump. Um, it didn't go well, obviously. 
um, and I left the scene and uh, called it in. <clears throat> so you put yourself and in his said, ground crew, basically. Basically, yeah, I put myself in his ground crew. And then they said to me, that is, that's a cool story. They said, here's what we know. We know that um, someone was driving past that highway at that split. There is a highway that goes by it at that specific time. And they saw a parachute open and their parachute colors are blue, black, and yellow. And um, we do notice on YouTube that you own a parachute with those exact colors. Oh, man. Um, and so if they were like, if you want to maybe have another go at that story, oh, man. I was like, all right, the cat is out of the bag now. So I recounted the actual story, which, you know, I filled in the gaps and they asked, then they were like, well, where's the footage? And I was like, at first again, I was like, there is no, I, my primary concern with the footage was that if it got in the cop's hands, that it would get leaked to media. And I didn't want his parents or family or anyone to ever see that footage that we had. So I, I really, I, I had hidden it in Sydney at a friend's house and I did not want them to see it. But it turns out once the story unfolds, it turns out that it was really that footage that really kind of, um, probably saved my ass in a way because the cops at the end of the day, what I came to realize was that they only want to make sure that there's not foul play. If it was an accident, they didn't even care. They don't care about the base jumping. They're like, whatever. In fact, the detective was like, the detective said to me after, he said, I think it's pretty awesome what you guys do. And he's like, he's like, when we found Ash, he's like, you didn't even litter. He's like, you guys had like a, uh, 1.5 liter bottle of water and you'd like not just tossed it off the tower. You'd scrunch it up and put it in your pocket to take the rubbish with you. I was like, yeah, you know, our, our ethics really are to leave no trace. We come and go and we do our thing and everybody stays happy, you know, and there's no issue. <clears throat> um, so really it was about just making sure that there wasn't foul play. And as soon as they could see that that was the case, then the case was really closed. The case was really, that was kind of it. So I ended up flying down with the detective down to Sydney. We picked up the footage and I ran him. By this stage, I'd probably watched the footage 20 or 30 times, I think, by the time I'd been through it on that night that I came back with those previous guys. Um, so I, it wasn't shocking to me anymore. You know, I'd, I'd seen it so many times. I relived it in my head. There was no, there was nothing that we could change to change the outcome. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing that could be done by anyone that was left. You know, it was it was a mistake made by Ash, and and we're at the situation. But um, I took him through that, and then I spent some time outside with my base rig, teaching him how packing and unpacking a base canopy and rigs so that he could understand how the deployment works um and then you know obviously him asking my opinion now though of course we're going to go find other opinions from other people especially with a coroner's report and stuff um but yeah we went through that and he flew back to back down to melbourne um they had said i had asked at the time if um my name would be especially because of my wakeboard career for my name was going to be kept under wraps or whatever. And they had assured me that it would be kept under wraps. <clears throat> I dropped him off at an airport at Sydney to fly back to Melbourne. And before he got off that plane, um, 
my name was Headline News across Australia. Oh, man. And even more, because you can imagine all the people that know me through wakeboarding that had, um, you know, they knew I base jumped, but, you know, they didn't really know how involved I was or stuff. And they were suddenly um, uh, in, in, implicated in someone's death. And you you know how news stories go. There's, there's not much truth and a whole lot of, whole lot of awesome hearsay. So yeah. the story went pretty wild for a little while here. And you can imagine, like, my phone was just blowing up for for a long time. Over Give it. us a little bit of uh, an understanding <clears throat> of how that story turned because like obviously the, the news had it in the beginning um, and mm. then they're going to want to follow up. How did they spin the drama? Well, my parents probably had about 20 news vans in front of their house for a solid week or so. Um, but by that time, I was already back down in Sydney so they weren't really catching what they what they wanted. Um, I did have to go to a court case, which happened months later in Melbourne. I had to go to a court case down there, um, stand in front of a judge. Um, they didn't really end up pressing any charges. This was, uh, mind you, this was like after I had returned from the US and after I had returned, like spent you know a few years doing the running the charity foundation for my friend Brad. I have no prior convictions or, you know, any, you know, I don't have, I haven't never had any trouble with the police before. So um, the judge was basically like, <clears throat> I ended up getting like a, a trespassing fine and I had to basically make a donation to the search and rescue crew that came out in the helicopters uh, to locate his body um, write letters of apologies to his, his parents and things like that. Um, but <clears throat> they didn't really, they weren't really interested in trying to hang me out to dry. Like I originally thought might happen, you know, what, you know, the, the fallout of what I thought could have happened and what did happen were, you know, like the, the outcome was very different, even though it wasn't an illegal spot. How about in the news media? Did they uh, take you uh, for a ride? Did they um, like want your? Help? Oh yeah, that they definitely, they definitely, they definitely spun some stories. Where, and it was like you know, one news media outlet would put something, and everything would just be a watered down photocopy version of whatever that text was. So the story would just get a bit more rumor and hearsay than any real facts, and eventually. I talked a lot with Gary Cunningham um, about dealing with the media. Obviously, he's the media like representative, I guess, for Aussie base here. Anytime there is anything to do with an incident, they're usually going to call Gary. He's going to comment on it. Um, you know, to the best of his ability, he always tries to, um, you know turn things into the most positive scenario, even if it is the most negative scenario for our sport, because we are like, he does such a great job of, you know, trying to be a positive representative for, for us, you know, not just here's a bunch of punk ass guys that got a parachute off the internet and go hug themselves off cliffs. Because as we know, that's not really how it goes. Yeah. And I'll put in a couple of cents <clears throat> there and uh, say that a lot of people uh, give some flack to anyone that talks to the media, but I'll say that like in the absence of anyone talking to the media, they make up whatever the hell they want. And so that was, that, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. That's my stance also. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, I had the Sydney Herald, Sydney morning Herald, which is, I guess like the, 
New York's Times version of Australia um, come to me and they're like, we want to do an in-depth story of what happened and kind of really hear your side. And I talked with Gary and I talked with other people and, you know, lots of people said, you know, the media always want to spin shit in a direction that suits them. Um, but I, I've been lucky enough through wakeboarding to do lots of media training and, and bits and pieces along the way. So I felt like I, I have a pretty good handle on being able to speak to the media. So I said to the Morning Herald, hey, I'm willing to do a story, but there's going to be a contract uh, between us. I want to talk with your uh, reporter. Um, I want to make sure that I get the final say on what's printed um like so basically i get to edit the final copy before anything gets put out to make sure that there's absolutely nothing that is misinformation or whatever um and they 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 pretty much agreed on that and this and uh three or four page story on the on the the incident really came out so yeah oh man okay so no serious criminal charges faced a huge rigmarole through the legal system, though, and uh, ran through uh, the news media several times. What was the fallout personally and professionally uh, for you on all this? Uh, it would have cost me probably ten to fifteen thousand um, dollars personally between flights and legal action and bits and pieces all the the surrounding things and the loss of work while you know having to having to deal with this kind of stuff um professionally i think like it taught me a lot um and then that that was when i really came to the point where i was like I thought that I was prepared for this kind of thing and i absolutely wasn't and i want to make sure that um people coming up into base jumping is that we can maybe prepare them so that they never have to go through the shit show that I've been through. So well, let's get into um, that. Yeah. What kind of preparedness yeah. are you looking at? What, uh, what advice do you have going forward for the next generation? Well, well, first of all, I think regardless of the legality, we're all carrying phones. We all have a GPS on us, basically tracking us all the time. So there is no real getting away. So, in this kind of scenario, regardless of, of where you're at, the best course of action should an incident like this occur will be to call the authorities and help them just with all the details of the incident. Be there. They just want questions answered to make sure that there's no foul play. And, that, and that's probably the number one thing. Um, I talked extensively with Dukes, who, you know, who really has been kind of my long-term mentor, mentor for a long time, um, about trying to make sure that we really prepare new students a, as well as we can for, you know, a scenario like this. Hopefully never, people don't ever have to deal with it, but if they do have to deal with it, then maybe they don't get blindsided into the situation like I kind of got myself into, you know? I mean, let's not, uh, let's not mince <clears throat> words. Like, you know, it's, it's unlikely that everyone faces it in their first like several years, but it's almost a certainty that you're going to face something like this eventually if you stay in the game long enough. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a tough one. So it's like, it really pays to be prepared. If you're not being, if you're not prepared, you're just really not taking it seriously in my book that's right that's right and then that that kind of really leads us to 
to taking a it a little deeper in terms of um, preparedness. And, and by that, I don't mean being prepared at the time, but more being prepared for the aftermath. And, and by that, what I mean is like having um, things in place should you like I've I've now seen personally more than a few times the fallout of a, a person passing away and them not having um, their own affairs kind of in order. Like every, you know, everybody talks, you know, lots of people talk on base courses. I, you know, I've got to write my letter or write my letters, you know, to my friends or my family, you know, like saying the things that I should say or want to say or, or whatever it may be. But <clears throat> Chris Burns and I have um, spoke about this a lot and it was actually really good. Um, a couple of seasons ago, Chris Burns came back to Australia after a big season and we were out at Tugulawa um, all together doing a bit of um, skydiving with a with a good wingsuit crew and all the crew that were there were also base jumpers and it was really awesome to be able to sit down <clears throat> and talk a little bit more extensively about the idea of making sure that your affairs are in place, say having a will and having things really set out because in a time of grief, like it's it's going to be very hard for your family. So say you've got a girlfriend or a wife and then you've got a mom and a dad, brother and a sister. And if, if those affairs aren't set out correctly, then you leave them a shit show and a bit of a gray area. And that can be where people can really like have a family fallout. You know, if, if Chris was talking, you know, say his family has a, a religious background and if he passed away, and he hadn't had stipulations set in place, then the then he would his family would expect that they would bury him in a cemetery due to their religious scenario. Whereas that's not exactly what he wants. Maybe he wants to be cremated and and have something else done. So if those things are all set in place, then then it's much easier. It's much more black and white, especially during a time of grief for the people that are left behind to be able to say, hey, well. Chris wanted these or Jeff wanted this or, you know, like, I mean, my wife already knows, you know, like I have a, a life insurance policy in place and I expect $20,000 of that life insurance to be spent on the best party ever for my friends should, you know, and I'm not saying my death from base jumping. I'm just saying my death period. Yeah. So, you know, you're preparing for all these things. Um, but then we were talking even deeper into this uh, about the fact that, uh, in this last season, um, someone went, someone went in, in over in Europe and it was an American and there between the authorities from maybe the Swiss and American, there was an issue because they needed records like dental records to be able to, uh, the Swiss need the dental records to identify the person, but the American embassy wouldn't release those because wouldn't release those to the Swiss because it's an American. So then now there's this, you've got a body and you've got a family that wish their, their son or daughter would be returned to them. But then you've got this international kind of issue between two countries. So we talked about even the fact of, you know, could you have, you know, when you're, when you're traveling or you're doing base trips or something, can you have not, not only like, Oh, here's my, contact details of the next of kin or here's my will or here's this or that but also like maybe going a little deeper to the point it was like 
here's a way to make it even here's some dental records of my own so that should that should the worst happen that we can make it easy on the people left behind yeah it's kind of ridiculous like, what's the that, plan like, road cyclists have all agreed that they're going to do road id and they all ro- roll around with like you know their entire medical history on their wrist and uh we as like participants in the most dangerous sport that has ever existed don't have any of that stuff on us like permanently fixed you know it it makes sense to me to have it like in everyone's mud flap or you know on somebody's rig in some like really easy to find place and man I, i love your point about affairs in order you know if if you expect one of us to approach your family and tell them that you need to be cremated because we're all going to snort lines of you in Vegas, <laughs> then you're fucking crazy, okay? <laughs> put it in a goddamn email, put it in a will, put it That's in right. something, okay? Because like that or, is a tough conversation. <laughs> or, or, or worse yet, having to then sneak some of the ashes just for that specific thing, knowing that the parents would get upset, even though we know that that is what our friend wanted. Like, uh, and and I've been in that situation, and this, you know, it's like, oh well, this this is awkward. We've got to steal some of our friend. Yeah, man, and I've seen <laughs> you know? I've seen those fights like you're talking about go wild too over over nothing over like people's like yeah. over people's underwear, bro. You know, like yeah, stuff that you would never think that you'd need to outline in a will of where it needs to go. Yep. And all of a sudden, like friends and family are fighting over these things. Yeah. Yep. So that's what, that's kind of where going from, going from this fatality to thinking about not thinking about the legality and illegality and just being able to call it in, but then going steps deeper to be like, okay, well, if the inevitable does happen, are, are we truly prepared and and what are those steps and they need to be outlined black and white so that <clears throat> so that we don't make it a disaster you know like like at the, at, for me at the moment you know like um i got a kid on the way i got a wife i was like imagine like if i pass away with nothing um here in australia now i don't know if this is the case um in your country or quite how the legalities work and, and everybody in wherever they live probably really needs to sit down and figure out what these legalities are. But here in Australia, if you don't have a will, like I was talking with Harry Bank, I've just been mentoring him into base jumping. He's a freestyle motocross star. I was talking with Harry and I said, Harry, you've been working your whole life. you got assets, you got a house, you got this, you got that. If you do not have a will and you pass away, the state, takes that or takes all that stuff and then they take the chunk of what they want out of that and then they decide basically who gets what's left over so all those years of work and all because you didn't say hey i want my house to go to my sister and i want my truck to go to my dad and this to go to my brother and i got 400 grand in the bank or you know whatever it may whatever your situation is even just down to like I've got seven different suits and I would like this person to have that suit and that person to have this rig and this person to have this thing because why not? Because that would be sentimental value. And I know that those person, those people would appreciate that. But if that's not lined out, how's my wife going to know which suit to give to which 
best friend or you know whatever it may be so how did this play out with ash did he i'm, I'm assuming that he did not have his affairs in order what was the you know, no and, the and he's and it's not been it's not been the only one either i i had a friend of mine one of my best friends pass away this past or almost almost a year ago uh in a wingsuit skydiving accident um and i talked with his um girlfriend who's one of our best friends too and i said to her just after the time that he passed away, I was like, tell me he had a will or he had something set aside. And she was like, he told me he was immortal and he was going to live forever. And I was oh. like, of course that mother, of course that motherfucker did. I was like, I was like funny, but also not funny because now between mom in a different country, girlfriend in a different country, all the things spread in between and everybody wants a different thing. It's like, oh man, that makes it really hard, you know? And there's, you know, there becomes fights or arguments or people have disagreements or agreements on, on what they think should be the appropriate course of action. Did you play a role in solving some of those disagreements in Ash's case or did you pass mm -hmm. it off to the family? I... It was a strange one for me because I had uh, I'd never actually met Ash's family, um, and that's another story in itself. I'd never met Ash's family um, ever before his passing away. It was like he was a, a base jump friend that I met in the mountains, and then we just jumped together. And then you know his family lived on the Gold Coast, and he lived uh, down south near near Sydney, and so there was I had never met them before his funeral, you know. So that's an even different story going to have to sit down and talk to someone's family about why their son or daughter has passed away and for, knowing that you're the last person that saw them alive. And there's, like you said earlier, there is a lot of emotions. Do you have any advice on that for somebody that's going to face that situation? I tell, I tell people now, especially the guys I'm mentoring, I'm like, pick the, pick the people that you're going to jump with, um, you know, pick, make sure that, that the person that you're jumping with is someone that you're willing to sit down in front of their parents and tell them why they're, why their person is gone, you know, because if you're not willing to do that, maybe you shouldn't even be jumping together in the first place. Uh, okay. So it's a weird, it's a weird thing to think about, isn't it? Yeah, but that makes sense. You know, if you're jumping with people that you love, then if inevitably, if you have to face that situation with their uh, next of kin, then it's going to come through that you love them and not that like he was just some random person doing some shitty thing in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden he's dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. But it was so in Ash's case, so I'd never met his parents before he passed away. Um, I ended up being back in the States living in Northern California. I had said to the detective at the time, if Ash's friends, if Ash's parents and family want to connect with me, please give them all my details and I'll be willing to talk to them about anything at any time. I went back to the States and I never heard anything. It was probably six or eight months after that. And one night I was just sitting at home and I was screwing around on Facebook and I'd see this little little like message box. I'm in my messages and I look in this little, it says other. And I'm like, what is this? And I click on it and open it. And it's my, my screen just fills with these messages. And I'm like, Oh my God. And they're all from Ash's mom. And it's, and I'm like, what, what is going on here? So I start clicking and read the first message is like, Hey, 
I'm Ash's mom. I would like to talk to you. The rest of my family, the rest of the family wants nothing to do with you. Um, they think I'm crazy for even wanting to reach out. Uh, but please, um, you know, here's my details. Could we please talk sometime? And then it's like, you know, a week. And then it's like, Hey, Jeff, just trying to get in contact with you. And then slowly, like, as I'm not answering because I've never, I didn't know about this inbox. Slowly the, the anger is building and the aggression is becoming more and more and more. And I, and I had no idea. And I opened this thing and I, you know, to the point where it's just like, you know, raging and I'm just like, Oh my, I get on there and I'm like, Holy shit. I'm so sorry. I've never seen these photos. I've never seen these messages before. I'm in America right now. I'll be coming home in a month. I would absolutely love to meet up with you. I will answer any and every question you want. Um, and I flew back and, sh- and you know, she calmed down after that. I flew back to Australia and um, we met up one afternoon. We went out. We have surf clubs here on the, on the coast. There's like, you know, like uh, surf clubs and they're like a place you can go drink beer on, on the beach basically. And we met up at the local surf club and we – drank some beers and wine that afternoon and we cried our eyes out together and we hugged and we talked about issue. I just answered every question I possibly could for her, you know, being that I was the last person to see him alive. And, um, and, and then we became friends and we're, you know, like we've, you know, been on subsequent lunches together and am with his brother Rory and stuff like that over the years as well. So, you know, we did form, form a relationship after that. And I'll tell you, something really really trippy out of this whole thing (laughs) and it's you know it's just a crazy universe trip so after that conversation with ash's mum, we're sitting at the at the coast and we don't really know anything about each other really other than i'm friends with ash and i was also the last person with him and and so i said you know where do you live and um you know what's your what's your situation like um so we're just kind of, kind of forming a relationship. And she said, well, I, I have a house in Palm Beach, which is the house that Ash grew up in. Um, but I would like to move down to Cabarita and I'm looking to sell this house <clears throat> bits and pieces. Now, a few days prior to this, my brother who lives on the Gold Coast here too was like, hey, um, we're looking at buy, we'll, me and my wife want to buy a house. We're looking at this house in Palm Beach. You want to come and have a look at it? There's an open home on this, on the, weekend so we go in have a look at this house oh yeah house looks cool it's a block from the beach it's beautiful this and that um the guy the real estate agent says to us oh yeah the lady that the lady that owns it wants want, needs to sell this house because she wants to buy a house in cabarita now i go have this lunch with tracy and i'm talking with her about things and then next minute i'm like putting two and two together i'm like <laughs> wait a minute i'm like i was in that house two days ago she was like, oh, yeah. She was like, I was sitting down the street watching you guys go in and out, but I didn't realize it was you. <laughs> and she goes to me, wait a minute. She goes, how was the real estate agent on that? And I was like, "I was like, my brother said he wanted to put an offer in. The guy said that he made a call to you, and he said that he came back real quickly and said that you wouldn't accept the offer. And I had said to my brother, that seemed too quick for him to just like get an answer like that. I said, Something seems pretty shady here. She was like, that motherfucker never even called me. So while we were sitting there in that <laughs> pub that day, she rang him and she's like, you're fucking fired. 
I put my brother in touch with her directly and my brother now lives in that house and she lives in Cabarita. So I actually go over to Ash's house all the time and it's such a trip. Oh, it's man. such a universe trip. Like that, that is not a coincidence, right? Yeah. Like that can, that cannot be a coincidence. And the other thing that, so when Ash passed away, obviously like there was a, there was a good couple of months where I had no interest in jumping. I knew I wasn't going to stop jumping and I did get heat from a lot of people, a lot of family members to, st- Oh, you're going to quit jumping now. This and that. And I was like, to me, it would be like, Ash would be pissed if he knew that I stopped jumping because of his accident. I know that. And I know that I would be the same if, if my death caused, you know, other friends to, you know, if it sucked the enjoyment out of it and, uh, and the community and all of that kind of stuff, I would be really bummed that, that I was the reason for other people to stop doing something that we love so much. Um, but I slowly was getting back into it. And then I was back in Northern California and I just wasn't interested in jumping with anyone else. I was like, look, I don't want to be the guy that has to go tell someone's parents they're dead. So I'm just not going to jump with anyone. (laughs) So I, I went out to those uh, 2,000 foot antennas near Lodi that everybody knows of um, one night. And I was, it was probably like 3.45 in the morning and I was going to climb that and do a sunset ju- uh, sunrise jump. <clears throat> and I went out there and I was obviously thinking about Ash because this was the first terminal tower that I jumped since his passing. And I'm walking out there and it's one of those just crisp, beautiful, like desert mornings. And I was like kind of talking to Ash, you know, talking to him in the universe and I was like, hey, man, like, I fucking love you and I miss you and I wish you were here, but, like, you know, look after me. And, man, it would be awesome if you give me a sign that you're around and everything's good, it would be awesome. And I swear, like, not more than a minute later, a, a star just burning bright across the, across the sky from right to left with the tower in the foreground burned across. And I was just like, you know, no. like happy tears. Like I was like, holy – <laughs> Fuck, I don't need any brighter sign than that, you know? Yeah, yeah it's, it's strange every once in a while when your prayers actually get answered. <laughs> man, it was bad. almost makes me feel a bit teary now thinking about it. It's like, fuck, pretty wow. crazy. Yeah. Well, what a story. Let's, uh, let me go back through for a second and just reframe some of these lessons because, man, we, we got a lot in there. So first mm. and foremost, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of these as we go, first and foremost – in a modern age, there's no way that you're going to escape somebody dying. So it's better to stay on the scene and help the investigation rather than be impeding a criminal investigation, which it's going to turn into if you leave. Absolutely. Number one. (laughs) So number two, if the media does get involved, uh, go to somebody that has media training or get media training yourself because they are fucking vultures. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If, you know, look, if nobody says anything, like you said, the media will make up whatever story they want. And look, if you go to the media and you just give them a soundbite, then they're also going to turn and twist your words into whatever they want. And who knows what picture they will pull off the internet, depending on what angle or agenda they have. But if you have someone in the media that you either know or trust, or if you're savvy in terms of, uh, contract or you know like the way i went down to make sure that 
you know, the scope of that story didn't be released uh, without me being, you know, the final, the final tick on that, then, you know, there is, cause it's unfortunate that for base jumping, a lot of the time, the only time it's seen in the media is, is when it's die. bad yeah. is when it's bad, you know, like, you know, I mean, you, you imagine, I'm sure you just saw just recently, Travis Pastrana had himself a little accident and it's like, he didn't hurt. He didn't die, but he hurt himself pretty bad. And it's like the, your regular Joe Blow already thinks base jumping's crazy, and they just everybody thinks Travis is the, you know, like the superhero of all. They're like, well, if Travis Pastrana can't do it, nobody can. <laughs> you know, like that is that's really bad for our sport. That kind of that kind of publicity we don't see often. Man, like you know, awesome things like Ellie Brennan, freaking smashing donuts off the side being the fastest woman in the world is you know like that kind of awesome stuff that happens yeah yeah no one wants to see the landmark human achievements they want to see the low moments yeah yeah that's right so next on the list uh preparedness talk to your friends that you're jumping with about what happens if they go in have a defined plan uh get your affairs in order and beyond that choose your crew wisely Mm. that's what i'm talking about and one that's absolutely correct and one thing i would like to add to that a little bit is um look lots of people like to jump by themselves i love to jump by myself it's something a little bit more special um you know you have to be a little bit extra motivated to be there by yourself you don't get that um group confidence like you're making all the choices by yourself and and I think awesome, go do it and manage the risks and stuff like that. But maybe you want to have a remote ground crew. Um, a lot of the crew that I've been mentoring here in Australia, they might go jump by themselves, depending on where they are around the country. And and I say find someone that is your remote ground crew. Send them a pin of where you're at. Let them know when you're at the top of the tower that everything's good, and let them know when to expect a call from you. And <clears throat> Should they not hear a call from you with a specified time, then your course of action is not to go to that place because that's the last thing you need to see, but to call in the emergency thing and say, hey, I have a friend and this person that is base jumping and I expected to call from them now and I'm now expecting the worst because I haven't heard from them um, and this is the location and and let that play out as it is. Um you know, I got I got a bunch of friends that I do that here for. I'll have the guys call me ten or eleven o'clock at night and say, "Hey, I'm going to go jump this antenna. Um, here's my location." And I'm like, I'm happy to be their remote ground crew, just as my wife is quite often my own remote ground crew here at home. I'll send her a text at the top, "Hey, everything's good. It's awesome. I'll talk to you." And another key important part on this little bit is to make sure you give yourself, like, if you're at the top of an antenna, don't say. I'm going to call you in five minutes because sometimes unforeseen circumstances can happen. Like you land and now you're running away from security and then you can't make that call within that allotted time, which has also happened to me. So, uh, and, and <laughs> as an experience say, maybe you're going to hear from me in the next 20 minutes, because if you're hiding in a bush, you can't exactly turn your phone light on, which would give away your position while three security guards are chasing you down a golf course. Fair enough. So even for the the solo jumpers, you know, be prepared because, Mm. you know, a lot of times they make this justification and certainly I have at some points in my career of like, look, I'm taking total responsibility here. So whatever happens to me, it's on me. 
and you know it's not going to affect anyone and that's just wrong like if you go in it's going to affect a lot of people maybe not like emotionally like you you think but practically like people have to yeah. clean up that mess and so it's yeah. not selfish to die base jumping in my opinion but it is selfish to die unprepared while base jumping cuz you're leaving a huge yeah. a huge burden behind yeah so all right let's uh let's wrap it up uh on the last key points here um and if anyone needs to uh, put in a will and testament, here's one example of uh, an online source. You can go to LegalZoom.com and you can file this whole thing in 10 minutes. Uh, so final points. Love the people that you base jump with because eventually you might have to be talking to their family. Yeah, I think it's just important to make sure that you're jumping with the, the right people for the right reasons and that and. Also, that goes vice versa for them, right? Are that you know, if you're the one that fucks up, that person's got to go speak to your family. Is it is that the right person, or is it just you know? Yeah. You know, I'm I'm not saying like sure. There's gonna you know you go to Turkey Boogie or you go to whatever, and there's you know you got a million people there, and it's you know it's it's not quite the same, but it's all you know. Also, when it's your general crew, I would say, you know, be aware. There's definitely been people in the past that I started jumping with here on the Gold Coast um, and they just became too much of a liability. I was just like, man, these guys, are they going to get caught or they're going to get injured or they're going to get killed and then I'm going to be implicated in one or any of those and I and I stopped jumping with them for those reasons, you know. And Now, you know, uh, those are the kind of people that usually – don't last too long in the sport anyways. They, they don't even really jump anymore, so it's not really an issue, but <clears throat> silly yeah. something to think about. Well, I mean, we, we act like it's all fire and brimstone, like, you know, choose your friends wisely because they may <laughs> die in front of you. But, like, you know, choosing your friends wisely and loving the people that you jump with also just adds to the experience. It's better all, all around. Absolutely. So, like, you yeah. know, while we can <laughs> say that it's, it's also good in death, it's, it's probably just as good in life. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. So, Jeff, uh, before we jump off, anything else you want to add or sign off with uh, before we, uh, you know, conclude this this round? Yeah, um, yeah. I I freaking love I love base jumping. My whole world is is revolving around base jumping. I love the community. I love the people. I love the the risk mitigation i love the commitment level you know like when when you meet people that base jump you know that you've you've met someone that has committed to doing something you know they've had to go through af they've had to spend time learning and it's and it's you know a never-ending quest so i i just love everything about that and and also these days i really try to be someone in the community that if anybody has um questions or queries or or wants a wants a hand like my social media is always open i got lots of people that hit me up and ask me questions and and i try and keep that line of communication open for anyone and just as um people that i see in the sport above me do for me you know like we've got some really great leaders in the community and i'd really try and lead by example and in my area of the community and just like um legendary people like Jimmy and Dukes and Sam Hardy and Sean Schumer and the, and yourself, obviously, like just, I mean, here you are creating um, content that is so valuable. I know all the guys that I'm mentoring currently, like I, I 
uh, podcast comes out and they're eating it up right away. And sometimes they're coming to me with questions. Oh, what did this person mean by this? Or, you know, how does that, and it's only promotes more learning, which means more safety, which means we can just keep sending it. Right. Like my, my thing is, let's do dangerous things safely, right? Like, well, I'm not saying don't do them. Like I want to send it as much as everybody else, but let's also keep the party rolling because it sucks when people die. Yeah. Yeah. Let's earn Sandy. And so, uh, yeah. the last part that I'd like to add then, if, uh, you don't mind, let's throw down some tags and some locations where people can find you. What are the Instagram tags? What are the lines of communication and where exactly are you uh, doing your jumping, you know, on the drop zones? Where can people find you? I am at jeffweatherall.com, uh, or sorry, at jeffweatherall on Instagram, on Facebook, and um, I do have jeffweatherall.com coming soon, actually. Um, I work for Skydive Australia in Byron Bay and up in Surface Paradise. Uh, if anybody wants to come and do a tandem out of a helicopter, then I'm your man to come and see. So, Sweet. Yeah. Well, if you want to do some wingsuit coaching, i got a good, we got a really cool community of crew uh, the Byron Bay Bats down at Byron Bay. We've got a good crew of up-and-comers coming through in smaller suits. And we've got a bunch of guys in the larger suits. Um, and we're really just – it's been growing over the last few years. And all the crew is awesome. Everybody's supporting everybody. Uh, and it's just – we've just done a really good job, I think, of – it's not clicky. We want people to come. We want people to enjoy wingsuiting. And, um, and – <laughs> Most of the people that are coming and learning a wingsuit skydive are also either already involved in base jumping or that is on their radar, you know, so they kind of end up coming my direction anyways. Um, and I just love to get people on track. Uh, if, if someone's goal is to base jump or to fly a wingsuit or to, you know, whatever the stoke may be, I'm just happy to help because um, fun is where it's at. It's the experience that is the, you know, it, it's the tool really to provide the experiences and those memories that we love. Well, I'm stoked that you are uh, pushing your skill, knowledge and experience forward to the next generation and y'all know where to find him. And Jeff, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Man, thanks so much for having me. Um, uh, just a tiny bit bummed that Lowe couldn't join us as well, but um, it's a bummer to hear that he's got a cold. Oh, we'll get him on the track. Don't worry about a thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for having me. All right, later. What a crazy experience. You know, I feel like Jeff has really been through a lot. And uh, kudos for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your experience. Couldn't have been easy. You know, the, like the main takeaway that I had from this episode was have a contingency plan and be ready for the worst case scenario. I know it's motivated me to uh, tighten up all my affairs and really be ready for the worst case scenario. And, you know, those hard, those hard discussions are, are better served beforehand. Matt, are you, um, have you been getting ready with your friends? Uh, have you been having some of these hard conversations? Are you already there? Are there some that you need to have in the future? Where are you at with this stuff? Well, I can tell you that I spent a decade having this conversation with my main jumping partner, Ian, before he went in and uh, having that conversation over and over again as to what we were going to do when somebody went in uh, was an incredible um, comfort at the time that he did because uh, I left nothing to question. You know, I, I knew exactly what to do and how to do it. 
Base jumping manifests in many different kinds of arenas. And uh, for me here in, in the Alps, it's uh, it's pretty standard that, you know, if someone is in an accident, you know, you call the PGHM on your cell phone and a helicopter comes, you know, if there aren't too many other rescues going on and they transport you directly to a hospital. And I think it's made me slightly complacent, uh, you know, Things that are going on in the U.S. and Australia and a little bit more remote locations are definitely a different scenario when things go sour. And um, it's reminded me that, you know, if I am to travel and, and get out into other locations that these contingency plans need to be in place, I can and learn from Jeff's and others' mistakes. Again, Jeff, thanks for being on the podcast Sorry I couldn't make it. Just means we're going to have to do another recording and catch up with you at some other time. And for me, thanks for everybody uh, tuning in and listening. Uh, Big shout out to our co-producer and sound engineer, Mark Stockwell. And uh, if you want to give us a follow, we are on Instagram at exitpoint.podcast. And if you've got something to say to us, feedback, or you or somebody else wants to be on the show, uh, feel free to slide into our DMs and we'll get something going. Thanks very much. See you next time.